Hello, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. Today, we will discuss the election of 1896, which will also cover the presidency of William McKinley, our 25th president, and the Spanish-American War. Before we turn it over to Jean-Anne, I want to thank our sponsors over at EliteBookEdits.com. Writing, writing, wherever it's wrong. If you have any book editing needs, please go and check out our friends over at EliteBookEdits.com. And if you have not heard, my two books are now available. Please find them on Amazon. You can find Immortals, about two Immortals. They're vampires, but they don't like that term, who want to reveal themselves to the world. And then they start filming a documentary and things start going very wrong as well as The Naughty List, which is my fun little Christmas-themed romantic comedy featuring two people who have been independently working with Santa Claus to get people off of The Naughty List, and then Santa sets them on a path to meet, but for what purpose? So that's Immortals Revelations and The Naughty List, both by me, Jimmy LaSalle. Take a look. You can find them on Amazon or wherever you buy your books online. And now we turn it over to our resident history expert, Jean Anzanakis Genie. Take it away. All right, so a big podcast today. We are approaching the turn of a new century within this episode. We will be talking about the election of 1896 between William Jennings Bryan and William McKinley, the life, presidency, and the assassination of William McKinley. He was president number 25, and the Spanish-American War. Politically, by 1896, Platforms of political parties are shifting somewhat, especially for the Democratic Party. Incumbent President Grover Cleveland, he was really thrown to the wayside by his party, and William Jennings Bryan won the Democratic nomination for president. He was supported by both Democrats and populists. If you have been with us from the start, which I hope you have, you may have listened to our podcast on the evolution of political parties. We briefly mentioned the Populist Party, also sometimes called the People's Party. This was a short-lived political party that emerged in the late 1800s. The populists supported free coinage of silver, improvements for farmers and agrarian workers, public ownership of railroad and telegraph lines, direct elections of U.S. senators, and a graduated income tax. While this political party was short-lived, their ideas were not, and they were absorbed by the Democratic Party, and many of their ideas will be passed into law and still remain today. So getting back to the election of 1896, William Jennings Bryan gave a speech at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, which becomes known as the Cross of Gold speech. It is one of the most famous speeches in American history, and it's really a great fiery speech. And there are a number of noteworthy quotes in it, but by far the most used is, and this is a direct quote from that Cross of Gold speech, we shall answer their demands for a gold standard by saying to them, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. This was the first of three presidential runs for William Jennings Bryan. The Republicans nominated William McKinley, a former governor of Ohio. Fun fact, he is also the last veteran of the Civil War to run for president. The Republican platform supported the gold standard, economic expansion, annexation of Hawaii, overseas expansion, and now this is important, 
the United States will become an imperial power. Globally, the age of imperialism is recognized as being from 1870 to 1914. And I'll get into to more of those terms when we talk about the Spanish-American War. If you look at the Electoral College map of the 1896 election results, you will notice that the southern and western states, with the exception of California and Oregon, voted for Bryan, whereas northern states and the upper Midwest voted for McKinley. William McKinley was from the great state of Ohio, and he was born on January 29, 1843. He was one of nine children. He was well-educated. He fought in the Civil War for the Union. Again, the last presidential candidate and U.S. president to be a Civil War veteran. He became a lawyer and got involved in local politics with the Republican Party. He was a friend and protege of Rutherford B. Hayes. He was a former congressman. He served in the House of Representatives, and he had a seat on the Ways and Means Committee. He served two terms as the governor of Ohio. He was married to Ida Saxton McKinley. They had two daughters who both died very young. Ida McKinley became sickly herself, and she suffered from seizures for the remainder of her life. And the president was really devoted to her. When an individual is elected president, they create a roadmap of sorts of what they and the party want to accomplish. For William McKinley, his was a presidency that was steered by foreign affairs, and the most major of those is, of course, the Spanish-American War. It took place in 1898, and the war lasted for about 100 days. I have mentioned a number of times in a number of different podcasts that one event often leads to another. For example, with the Industrial Revolution, we have the capability to mass-produce items, but where are we going to sell this abundance of items? And where are we going to get the inexpensive raw materials to produce them? The United States has already conquered the land from sea to shining sea. Manifest destiny, right? Now we begin to look beyond our borders. Latin America had become increasingly more important as the United States continued to industrialize. Spain controlled a vast empire in Latin America. By the mid-1800s, many countries were looking for independence. By 1895, Cuban rebels began to revolt against Spanish rule. In response, Spain spent, uh, sent a new governor who was incredibly harsh in hopes of putting down the rebellion. Governor Whaler became known as the Butcher. Just so you can understand how harsh he was, detention camps were built for Cuban rebels and hundreds of thousands of Cubans were detained, and conditions were so bad that an estimated 200,000 Cuban people died at those camps. The images of emaciated prisoners increased the calls for U.S. intervention. The rebellion in Cuba concerned Americans as Cuba is located 90 miles off of the coast of Florida, and economically, U.S. businesses had millions of dollars in investments, and our country was doing millions and millions of dollars worth of trade. And there were arguments on either side if the United States should intervene. You have imperialists and you had anti-imperialists. 
For those who were anti-imperialists, they feared what going to war would do economically, that the United States didn't need any more territory. You have some who felt it hypocritical for the United States to become a colonial power. After all, we too fought a revolution to free ourselves from a foreign power. For those who supported intervention, the United States is producing more products than we need. We need more markets for our goods. By 1915, the United States will export more products than any other country. Now, World War I has a lot to do with that, of course. You know, Europe's a little preoccupied. But there were strategic advantages to expansion, both commercial and militarily. In times of war, the United States would be able to mobilize troops from a number of strategic locations. What really fanned the flames for war was something called yellow journalism. The definition for this term is biased opinion masquerading as fact. Sounds like news today, right? The role of the press is an extremely important one. When information is distorted for the purpose of selling more newspapers than your competitors, or in today's case, for higher ratings and a greater opportunity to bring in more money through advertisements, this is very dangerous. This is something that can be debated at length. Who decides what is news? Who decides what gets primetime attention and what doesn't? Is something being made into a big story or a bigger story in order to detract attention from something else? All important questions to consider. When you get your news, do you go to one source? If the answer to that last question is yes, you need to start getting your news from a variety of sources, not just one. In the case of the Spanish-American War, you have two competing newspaper editors, Joseph Pulitzer, who ran a paper called New York World, and William Randolph Hearst, who ran the New York Journal. So we are seeing sensationalized headlines, distorted stories that weren't telling the whole truth, paired with misleading images. Each man printing editorials in their newspapers, fanning the flames of public outrage. There are a number of great political cartoons that can be used when teaching this topic. After all, what sells newspapers better than a war, right? Extra, extra, read all about it. The image of the newspaper boys on the street corners, holding their newspapers up, reading off the headlines. There were some days that a million copies of the newspaper were sold as a result of their use of yellow journalism. Now, the straw that breaks the camel's back has to do with the USS Maine. The USS Maine was kept off of the coast of Cuba in the event that the rebellion escalated. It was a fairly new and impressive steel warship. So this warship is sent for the potential protection of American citizens in Cuba, but also as a show of force, you know, flexing our muscles a little bit. This is what the United States is capable of bringing to your shores, right? There's more where this came from. Spain is a European powerhouse. The United States is not even close to being a world power, yet here is our warship. On February 15th, 1898, after over two weeks of being in the harbor, the USS Maine exploded. Many of the sailors on board were badly burned, many of them thrown into the harbor from the explosion and were drowning. 
only 94 men of the 350 on board survived. The USS Maine sank and the survivors were taken from the wreckage. Spanish officials were quick to denounce the attack and to ensure that the American government knew that, you know, Spain had nothing to do with it. The explosion of the Maine was most likely due to either a mine in the water or from the spontaneous combustion of coal housed within the ship. It was most likely an accident, but at the time, Newspapers in the United States printed story after story that only enraged the American public even more. President McKinley hoped that cooler heads would prevail until the full story of what really happened could be uncovered. The story is ripe for distortion. Who could have done this? The Spanish government, who is already having to battle Cuban rebels? Did the Cuban rebels have the means to plan and execute such an attack? McKinley was heavily criticized for holding off on declaring war. He knew the horrors of the battlefield as a Civil War veteran. He hoped that war could be avoided. Spain's refusal to free Cuba and the expulsion of the U.S. ambassador to Spain, war was just no longer avoidable. Spain declared war on the United States. The United States declared war on Spain. It is often referred to as a splendid little war. The war lasted, again, about 100 days. There were limited casualties, and by the time the war was over, the United States was an imperial power. The limited Spanish forces in Cuba were no match for the United States Navy. First, the United States defeated the Spanish Navy in the Philippines, and then they went on to Cuba. When you talk about the Spanish-American War, you, of course, have to mention Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders. Theodore Roosevelt was the assistant secretary of the Navy at the time that war broke out. Assistant to? Assistant to, yes. <laughs> he had long supported going to war with Spain. Um, he felt it was our job to bring freedom, to bring the greatness of the United States to as many people as possible. He felt so strongly that he stepped down from his position so that he could go and fight. One of the most decisive battles of the war was the Battle of San Juan Heights. This battle cemented the fame of the Rough Riders and their commander, Teddy Roosevelt, as a war hero. The Rough Riders were a volunteer regiment. Think cowboys, rough and tumble men mixed in with, you know, these young college students who are outraged by current events and who had been emboldened to fight. And within the Rough Riders, you also have Native Americans. Another group that I want to mention are the Buffalo Soldiers. This was the name given to black soldiers who had been fighting military campaigns against Native American tribes. A very distinguished group of soldiers, by the way, many of whom received the Medal of Honor. And if you are into music, you might be thinking of the lyrics to Bob Marley's song, Buffalo Soldier. That is where the term comes from. The conditions for the men fighting were tough. U.S. soldiers only had winter uniforms, and they are fighting in hot Caribbean islands. Um, many more soldiers happened to die from diseases like yellow fever and malaria than those who died from battle wounds. And after the Spanish fleet in Cuba was destroyed, the Spanish surrendered. But that USS Maine became a rallying cry, remember the Maine. The war ended with the Treaty of Paris of 1898. 
In December of 1898, a peace treaty was signed between the United States and Spain after officials representing the country met in Paris. Treaties are typically named after the cities that, that negotiations take place in. Within the treaty, Spain granted Cuba independence. The islands of Puerto Rico and Guam were given to the United States, and the United States paid Spain $20 million for the Philippines. $20 million? <laughs> $20 million. Puerto Rico and Guam are still under U.S. control. We should actually do a separate podcast on that at some point, too. That's an interesting topic. The Philippines is a different story. Like Cuba, the Philippines had been hoping and fighting for independence. When it became clear that the United States had no intention of giving them independence, fighting broke out. It is seldom talked about in U.S. history classrooms. The conflict is referred to as the Philippine Insurrection or the Philippine-American War, right? Raise your hand if you heard about that one, but it took place. It lasted until 1902. The calls for independence in the Philippines never stopped. By the end of World War II, the Philippines were given their independence in 1946. And we'll talk more about that when we get to the end of World War II. Spanish colonial rule in the Americas officially came to an end and the United States became an imperial power. I want to talk a little bit about the Platt Amendment of 1901 because that stipulated the conditions for U.S. military withdrawal from Cuba. So even though Cuba was gaining their independence, there were some, some strings attached. So Cuba was expected to provide land for military bases for the United States, repay debt to the United States, and to never sign a treaty that would hurt the United States and the United States held the right to intervene in its affairs. So just think about that a little bit. The military base in Cuba is one, of, is one that most may have heard of, Guantanamo Bay. It is also important to mention another territory that came under U.S. control during the same time period, but in a different way, and that is Hawaii. We need to briefly go back in time a little bit. In 1820, the United States sent missionaries to Hawaii. Many of them stayed. By 1887, U.S. sugar planters had gained both economic and political dominance, and they forced the Hawaiian monarchy to pass laws that restricted its power, and they attempted to overthrow the monarchy. In 1893, the Queen of Hawaii, Queen Liliuokalani, was deposed. President Grover Cleveland did not agree with what had happened to Hawaii's queen, and rightfully so. It was very underhanded. McKinley held very different views, and when he was in office, he worked to bring the islands under U.S. control. The Spanish-American War solidified Hawaii's strategic importance, and they were annexed or added to the United States. In 1900, Hawaii became a U.S. territory, and in 1959, it became the 50th state. So when we talk about foreign policy in regards to William McKinley, it's pretty aggressive, right? But we also have to talk about a specific policy known as the open door policy. Luckily for you, I also know a little bit about world history. Maybe we'll do world history repeated someday. Uh, and we have to go back in time, of course, to understand why what is happening in the late 1800s is happening. 
So European interest with trade with China goes back hundreds of years. The desire for Chinese goods increased, but there was a big trade imbalance. There was one thing that British merchants had that many Chinese wanted, and that was opium. Marketed for medicinal uses and a pain reliever, it was also highly addictive. So much so that an estimated 2 million people were addicted to it in China. It got to the point where China ruled by the Qing dynasty, who was ruled by the Qing dynasty at this point, they passed a law which banned the sale of opium. Great Britain went to war with China for the right to continue its opium trade, not once, but twice. As a result of those two wars, Great Britain and other countries had won the right to trade at more ports than they had been able to before the wars. A number of European countries had carved out for themselves what became known as spheres of influence within China. Think of it as areas within the country where certain ports had been claimed by a specific foreign nation, and that foreign nation had sole trading rights in that area. Now, what countries are we talking about? Well, the heavy hitters, Great Britain, France, Germany, Russia, even Japan. The United States is not yet strong enough to create a sphere of its own, but it does not want to get closed out of any potential opportunity. But we do have the idea to say, hey, European countries, instead of spheres of influence, why not have an open door policy? An open door policy in terms of trade. We still don't want their immigrants, right? We still have banned Chinese immigrants. The premise of the policy was that any of the countries who wanted to trade with China could trade anywhere they wanted within China. And this was the ingenious plan of McKinley's Secretary of State, a man by the name of John Hay. Now, ingenious, depending upon who you are asking, right? We had to divide and conquer a bit when it came to the European powers to get everyone on board. But the opportunity to have unrestricted trade within China was to all their benefits. Now, you have to consider this policy the equivalent of you deciding you're going to create an open door policy to your neighbor's home. You don't own the home. It's not your home. But you've just decided you can control who goes in, who goes out, and what they do and where they do it, right? Q rebellion within China. The Boxer Rebellion, that is. A group known as the Harmonious Fists began to attack foreign officials, merchants, and Christian missionaries. Fearful of losing their rights to trade and to protect their economic interests, the United States and a number of European countries sent troops to put down the rebellion. The thinking was that they were justified because they were simply protecting their economic interests. Foreign policy-wise, there is a lot going on during his presidency. And you can see the seeds being planted for the United States to become a world power. But that won't fully happen until a bit later, but the stage is being set. For William McKinley, he runs for re-election, the election of 1900. And once again, we see a rematch between Republican incumbent President William McKinley and Democrat challenger William Jennings Bryan. Bryan is once again calling for bimetallism, and he was a vocal opponent of the imperialist policies of McKinley's administration. William McKinley, this time around, had a new running mate. His first vice president died in office during the election, and Republicans nominated former New York City mayor and governor Theodore Roosevelt. 
Roosevelt was a national figure after the Spanish-American War. Every love, everyone loves a war hero, remember? And I find it important to mention that the vice presidency was dangled in front of Teddy Roosevelt, mainly to get him off of the backs of the powerful and corrupt New York political machine bosses. Roosevelt was a progressive reformer, and he was doing a little too much reforming for their liking. So the sentiment was very much, let's get him out of here. Let's offer him the vice presidency, which at the time was still a do-nothing position. But this plan, of course, backfired when he became the president after McKinley's assassination. McKinley wins election, or re-election, I should say, in November of 1900, and by September of 1901, he would be dead. So what happens to the guy? So William McKinley was attending a Pan-American or World's Fair. On the second day of his two-day visit on September 6, 1901, President McKinley was shot while attending the World's Fair in Buffalo, New York, by a 28-year-old anarchist named Leon Jolgoz. He was a natural-born citizen and a son of Polish immigrants, a former laborer and a steel worker who had lost his job and had been blacklisted. He felt as though the presidency had too much power. The president did not have 24-hour protection like today. At the exposition, he did have a large security detail, but when it came time to shake hands, right, what do politicians like to do, shake hands and kiss babies? When it came time to shake hands with the public, President McKinley, he chose not to have them present. Two shots were fired, point blank, into the president. President McKinley was operated on. The doctors were unable to locate the second bullet, but they closed the wounds. While it appeared the president would survive, the wound became infected with gangrene and he died eight days later. McKinley was the third president to be assassinated, Lincoln Garfield McKinley, and the last president not to have 24-hour protection. The assassin, Leon Jolgoz, was put on trial for the murder of the president, was quickly found guilty and executed. President McKinley's body was brought back by train, accompanied by the 26th president, Theodore Roosevelt, who had been rushed to Buffalo, where he was sworn in as president an hour after McKinley's death. President McKinley's casket lied in state in the White House, then to the Capitol building before being brought back to his hometown of Canton, Ohio. He is buried in a beautiful domed mausoleum that was built on top of a hill overlooking the city he loved so much. A man whose presidency saw a former colony, now independent nation, become an imperial power. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parler. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.